Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. It is critical for organizations to never forget that adult learners occupy the workspace. These are adult learners. They're not just colleagues. They're not just employees. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the new podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this first series of 10 episodes, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is learning in organizations, and we'll be exploring how to build a learning culture, different types of learning, learning within teams, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by three leading scholars. Dr. Karen E. Watkins, Professor of Learning, Leadership and Organizational Development in the College of Education at the University of Georgia. Dr. Victoria Marsik, Professor of Adult Learning and Leadership at Columbia University Teachers College, and Dr. Jelena D. Alston, Associate Professor of Adult Education at North Carolina A&T State University. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them. And then for the second part, Karen, Victoria and Jelena are together to explore their shared interest in learning. That discussion is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, the University of Georgia Program of Adult Learning, Leadership and Organizational Development. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during April, May and June of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet my first guest. My first guest today is Dr. Karen E. Watkins. Professor of Learning, Leadership and Organizational Development in the College of Education at the University of Georgia. Karen holds a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin and an MA from the University of Wisconsin. Her scholarly interests include organizational learning assessment, informal and incidental learning, and action science. Together with Victoria Marsik, Karen developed and validated the dimensions of the Learning Organization Questionnaire used in over 80 published studies. Karen was inducted into the International Adult and Continuing Education Hall of Fame in 2003 and the Academy of Human Resource Development Scholar Hall of Fame in 2014. Karen was one of the founding presidents of the Academy of Human Resource Development and is currently on the Board of Trustees of the Geneva Learning Foundation in Switzerland. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on learning and development in organizations. Thank you, Darren. I really look forward to our conversation. Before we dig into the details of learning in organizations, I'd like to start by putting it into context by asking what the term human resource development 
means to you? Well, I've given a lot of thought to that over the years that I've been working in this field and a number of other people have as well. My work has been really focused on trying to expand the scope and, and effectiveness of the human resource and organization development role so that they can create more effective, healthier, more innovative organizations. So I defined HRD back in 1989 as the field of study and practice responsible for the fostering of a long-term work-related learning capacity at the individual group and organizational levels within organizations. And truthfully, I feel like my entire career has been focused on unpacking that definition because it, it focuses on something that, that I don't think you see in a lot of other definitions of human resource development. And that's the, the work-related learning capacity. How do you foster a long-term work-related learning capacity? And how do you do that at individual levels and at organizational levels? I, I was teaching at the University of Texas at Austin and I had a guest speaker come in from IBM in the training department. And he came in and, and uh, the students asked him what he did. And he said, well, my job is to change the capacity of the organization. And, you know, we kind of chuckled a little bit like, well, gosh, you know, that's kind of cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what his job was, Darren? It was workplace literacy. Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, that is changing the capacity of the organization. Yeah. Because yeah. if you take people who can't read or write and you give them that skill, all of a sudden that skill is available to the organization. You, you know, and you can take that and think about that in so many other ways. Uh, you know, you give people a skill, it becomes a tool that, um, that they can access when the organization needs it. And so it got me really thinking about, you know, how then do we create learning so that it's part of the DNA of the organization? It's part of how we do things here. Uh, you know, to, to me, that's the job. It's bigger than just changing performance or learning um, some discrete skill. It's, uh, it's thinking about the capacity of the organization and what it can accomplish and what it could accomplish with learning. It may seem a strange question, but I, I'm tempted to ask it anyway, which is what's actually meant by the term learning? Yes. Well, you know, actually, there's no, um, you know, scholarly definition that's agreed upon. You know, what people actually say is that learning is simply change. So it's a change in behavior, a change in your perspective, perhaps a change of skill. So something is learned. And that sounds a lot simpler than it is to, to cause. And the job of, of human resource development is, is to cause learning in an organization. And what becomes difficult is that we don't actually know how to measure that. If we give it a, somebody a test, is that learning? I think that for us, the real test is whether the learning is applied is it used? So if, you know, think about the game of golf. I can take a class, right? I can uh, watch a video. I can take a, you know, I can work with a tutor. You know, uh, uh, I can practice with a, a video game. 
I still don't know golf. And, you know, it isn't really until I have used it out on, the, on a golf course again and again and again that I can clearly demonstrate that I've learned how to play golf. And I think that's the, the secret here for how to think about learning in human resource development. Our job is to uh, create skills uh, and knowledge that people can then apply in order to, um, you know, not only do a job better, but to, you know, help the organization become better. So it's, it's changing that capacity. So you talk a bit there then about like the significance of learning and increasing learning capacity in an organization. And presumably that requires us to understand how adults in the workplace learn. That's a really important factor, I think, for human resource development, that, that the people we are working with, you know, have already come through some kind of K-12 education and are now um, out there in the workplace, hopefully with tools uh, for the job. So now we have to think about them differently. You know, uh, Kurt Lewin said that all adult education is re-education. That first you have to unlearn the pre your previous ways of doing something in order to learn something new. Learning for adults is experiential. It's context. It's you know we're we're in the workplace context, and what difference does that make? You know, the learner's agency is a really important idea in thinking about adult learning, which is why they talk a lot about informal learning, because informal learning you know, the, the learner is in charge. In your answers there, you've referenced formal, informal, and incidental learning. And I'm wondering how you define each of those terms. Formal is uh, really anything that is teacher-led, trainer-led, and typically it's in, in a classroom, but it could be an online classroom. So it, it is, it's formal in that there are clear objectives, it, where informal is typically outside of a formal structure. It's not necessarily institutionally sponsored. In our case, it is typically because it's workplace. And incidental learning is typically a byproduct of some other activity. So you're doing the job, but in doing it, you're learning without even maybe knowing it until later when you reflect on it and you realize that, well, you know, all of that trial and error learning has led to some clear assumptions about how to do this work going forward. Have you seen a, a, a change over time in that the balance between like formal, informal and incidental learning in the way that it's viewed within HRD in organizations? Definitely. I, I, I follow some of what Josh Burson writes. If you look at Training Magazine, you know, it, many of these are now talking about phrases like a learning ecology. We have to create a learning ecology. You know, Victoria and uh, Marsik and I talk about a learning infrastructure which would be all of the systems, policies, and activities that promote individual team and organizational learning capacity. So it's an infrastructure of formal, informal, and incidental learning. But more recently, people are talking about learning in the flow of work. Strong emphasis on um, continuous learning and digital learning 
and now people uh, are thinking about, well, no, we really have to figure out how can we adapt the learning that we provide so that it, people can do it coterminously with work. And, and so that learning and the flow of work is one. Another thing that people have talked about is work adjacent uh, learning. You know, in our, our work, uh, you know, uh, we have talked about learning-based work, which is basically the, the, the separation between work and learning um, is no longer, um, it's, it's just not viable. And increasingly, because people are doing knowledge work, they have to learn in order to do the task. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like everybody's in, uh, I, I like to describe training as the uh, little R&D because you're kind of, that's really what you're doing is you're, you're inventing a new skill in order to create a new capacity. And, uh, you know, so we've increasingly asked people to be um, discovery focused, you know, they, they uh, to do the job that you are assigned, a pro, you know, let's think about an agile team, um, that team, in order to create something new and do something differently in a timely way, they're probably going to have to do a lot of investigating and research and trial and error learning. So, there, you know, the job itself is learning situated. It's learning based. Uh, you can't accomplish the work in an agile team without spending a fair amount of your time learning and setting um, experiments up in order to learn from them. So yes, I think that the balance is, is moving very heavily toward informal and now more, you know, with um, some of the emphasis on socialization and, and complexity, uh, incidental learning is coming into its own. And you're likely to see a much stronger emphasis on that as well. With so many changes to workplaces and to learning in the workplace, how does an organization build their capacity for continuous learning? You know, I kind of think that we have to teach people to learn on their own. You know, we have to invest in uh, teaching leaders to be coaches when we look at learning organizations, uh, one of the things that stands out the most, in fact, the single item on our, our questionnaire on dimensions of a learning organization, the one that correlates the most with uh, changes in organizational performance is that leaders mentor and coach those they lead. So I think, you know, it all comes to culture, Darren. The culture itself has to be wired for learning. And it, we do that by teaching people how to learn on their own. The objects give them the resources. So we have to, we have to make resources available. And then, then I think you have to have systems for when they fail. And so that's where I think the kind of each one teach one, peer coaching, um, you know, supervisors as coaches, uh, all of those kinds of uh, behaviors that we talk about need to be part of the culture of a continuous, you know, if we're going to have a continuous learning culture. So, so we need a philosophy, I think it is. It's really a, a, a belief that it's our job to help other people learn. 
but it's, it's so it's, to me it's it's really about you know a culture you have a mission and a vision for the organization and you see learning as at least one of the primary ways that you're going to achieve that vision and mission i would imagine part of that then becomes once that that's in place looking at the overall system within the organization and figuring out what forces are operating that are inhibiting learning. Yeah, you know, Ed Schein says that culture is both the consequence of the organization's prior experience and learning, but it's also the basis for its continuing capacity to learn. And so, you know, the the how bureaucratic, how rigid, how, um, you know, what what is the organization's prior experience in being innovative and uh, focusing on learning? Um, that that gives you the threshold from which you have to move and uh that the more rigidly held control is at the top and so on the more difficult it is to free things up the notion that, that learning only happens when you have space of free movement right yeah. so we have to, we have to create and that's where the culture comes in you know really the learning organization is it's 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 the karma in the walls and halls, we like to say, because it, it's part of the, the the vision, the strategy, you know, all of these things, the policies, procedures. Yeah. But it's also in tiny little things. And so uh, I was in a high-tech company and they had they wanted to stimulate new product development. And so they had a kind of a suggestion box. It was a little more sophisticated than that. But it, basically they would they would give people a thousand dollars if their idea led to any kind of patent or people picked it up in, in some way. And then they talked to one of their plants in another part that happened to be in Lubbock, Texas. And they were getting as much as 30 ideas a month from some people. And certainly the output of the number of ideas that were generated were way over what this um, one plant had that was giving a thousand dollars and they just couldn't understand it. And they said, well, what do you do to incent people? And he said, well, we give them a hot fudge Sunday. So I, you know, I think that's, that's a, a an organization that understands culture. It, it clearly feels like um, a, a complex, messy system. I'm not sure that's the right term, but I, it, it feels that when I feel about all of the things that come together to create a culture of continuous learning. Uh, and so when you created the learning organization model, mm-hmm. how did you find a way of providing clarity from that messiness? The idea was to change capacity, right? We were looking at, you know, how do we create an organization that learns continuously and can tr- transform itself? And so we did what academics usually do. We went to the literature. We went and looked at all of the organization development writing and other writing than, you know, how do you create a self-renewing organization or, you know, any of those kinds of things. But then we went and talked to people who thought, you know, just said that they were creating learning organizations. And we held workshops with people. And, uh, and we asked them, you know, Looking backward from perfect, what would be different if your organization was a learning organization? And we, and, you know, so we began by looking at um, promising, what we called promising experiments. So things that people were doing 
in learning and development that we thought had promise to create a learning organization that would, that would something that would change the capacity. Uh, and then looking across all of that, we came up with seven dimensions. So we, we, we realized that you had to create continuous learning opportunities, that there had to be some way um, that people could have learning at their fingertips. We also realized that you had to be able to ask why. You know, the Ralph Steyer, the president of uh, Johnsonville Foods, who's one of our favorite examples of a learning organization, talked about the fact that a supervisor, I mean, I'm sorry, a machine operator would come in in the morning in the, in the old days and they would notice that something was wrong with the sausages that were coming through their machine. And they would have to sometimes leave the building with the machine running, go to another building to find the supervisor that had the power and authority to stop the machine so that they could fix it. Well, you know, that's, there's no culture of dialogue and inquiry there. So, yeah. you know, they had to, they had to not only be able to say to the supervisor, I got to turn off the machine, but they also needed to have the power to turn it off uh, because the quality would go down if they did not. So the, we need the, the capacity to inquire into things and, and do it at all levels. We needed a culture of collaboration. You know, so much of what happens when people try to change a system is happens at a team level. Really, it, what matters is do people feel like they're all on the same team? Is there a way that, that we have a spirit of collaboration? Ralph Steyer at Johnsonville Foods said, um, that he, he had everybody take, uh, uh, the first thing they did is they had to take a class on economics, called it Economics 101. And it was teaching every single employee in the company how the company made money and what their role was to help that happen. So, you know, things like that, that, that give people a sense that they're part of the team, uh, the big team, not, not the necessarily the little one, we were interested in the wisdom drain and the fact that, you know, if you focus only on individual learning, then every time somebody leaves the organization, everything they know walks out with them. So we felt that they need to have, you know, some kind of systems to capture and share learning. And uh, we tried to make those as not only clear, as you said, but also accessible, that they, you didn't have to have a fancy knowledge management system but you did have to have a town hall meeting or some ability to do that, some way to get people um, to share what's working. You know, uh, uh, Motorola used to take people out, and they would he would they would have all the top teams in the company that had been highly successful, and they would all come together and share what they did so they could learn from it, and so to learn from their own best practices. So there had to be the, some strategies to do that. And people had to be clear about what the vision of the organization is. And, and it had to be collective, like collectively known. Like if I don't know what, you know, what is the vision, then how do I know what my job is relative to it? And if you don't give me enough latitude to make decisions within that role, um, I'm not really going to be able to uh, work in a way that's consistent with the vision. And so, and then our, our last two um, dimensions were that the organization has to be uh, connected to its environment. 
And of course, the leaders have to model and support learning. The leaders being learners themselves and supporting my learning, you know, not just giving me money to learn, but knowing what it is I need to learn and being the coach that helps me get there. Uh, that makes, that is, um, that dimension is the most important of the seven in terms of predicting uh, performance. Thinking about those seven dimensions, how could an organization assess itself against them? So to determine where it's strong from a learning perspective and where it should be focusing more attention. I think it's, it's important to mention that we have a, we created a questionnaire that measures the seven dimensions. And that questionnaire is highly valid. It's used all over the world. But what's important about that is that, that that instrument allows us to give organizations a tool whereby they can look at their learning culture and they can see movement in it. And we know from the research that we've done, it is correlated with organizational performance and particularly knowledge performance, which is the, you know, that's where you create your intellectual capital, the, the new products, new services, the innovations in the organization. And so, and that it, that knowledge performance is correlated with financial performance. Well, Karen, thank you so much indeed for our conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed our time together today. I have too. Thank you so much, Darren. So if you were to stay with us while I chat with Victoria, and then later in the episode, we'll have you back for the group conversation. Great. Thank you. My second guest today is Dr. Victoria Marsik, Professor of Adult Learning and Leadership at Columbia University Teachers College, where she directs academic programs in adult learning and leadership. Victoria worked in Asia and other countries for many years with not-for-profit organizations and UNICEF prior to joining the Teachers College faculty. Victoria has worked with organizations to design, develop, and implement learning and leadership interventions. She's published many articles and books, often with Karen Watkins, on informal and incidental learning at work, in individual learners, and through their collaborative work with others in and on behalf of groups, communities, and organizations. Victoria has been inducted into the Adult and Continuing Education Hall of Fame and has received the 2018 HRD Scholar Hall of Fame Award from the Academy of Human Resource Development. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on learning in organizations. It's great to be here with you. So I'd like to start by picking up a topic that was raised by Karen. In my chat with her, she was talking about the importance of learning cultures in organizations. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of steps involved in doing that. And so I was wondering what you would recommend are the first few steps that someone should take when building a learning culture in an organization. It is a messy process, as you noted in talking with Kieran, and it, it can't just touch one thing. Uh, there are particular leverage points that we should pay attention to and change. And at the same time, their order might be a little different, uh, what you start with and how you do it 
who you involve depends a lot on your diagnosis of the context and how you're able to move through that diagnosis and adjust as you move because we often have assumptions about what's wrong or how things ought to go. And it's really eye-opening to see what other people think about the situation (laughs) often causes us to take another point of view. I think the diagnosis has to tell us what's the organizational context uh, for the culture change? You know, what kind of organization is it? Is it a startup, a turnaround, a legacy? Where is it in the ecosystem? Are we changing just within certain boundaries or do, do, are those boundaries connected in ways that you have to also change? Uh, one of my students right now is doing, has done a really interesting dissertation on um, agile technology and it becomes clear that you can change the culture of a team for agile technology, but it's very deeply connected with the rest of the organization, of course. And so you have to use then the opportunities that that affords to go up and down the value chain and to look at what's blocking uh, other parts of the organization from taking advantage of these kinds of things. But I do think that it's helpful to kind of understand what your leverage points are. Um, And I use a framework that Martha Gephardt and I worked on together where we adapted uh, factors that are transformational in nature and transactional in nature. Uh, So I use that framework because transformation, which is where people go, things like leadership, strategy, culture, et cetera, those are big ideas and you can't change them or expect them to be enduring unless you actually work uh, on a day-to-day basis with the transactional factors, that you have to kind of go in with the opportunity that you're facing and figure out what has to change now. When the learning organization work uh, was just getting underway, one of our colleagues, Michael O'Brien, was was in much demand to work with organizations to think about how to change the culture to a learning culture. And he, he told me about a, a consultation he had, and he said that when he raised the question of what happens around here when mistakes are made, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the room. You know, clearly mistakes would, were not expected to happen, but it's often those, those elephants on, in the room, you know, that we know are standing in the way of uh, important change uh, that makes such a difference. And of course... All of this is happening within the context of the organization's culture, which presumably adds to the complexity of changing learning within the organization. One of the things I did was look up a really, I think, interesting definition of culture that's in a book by the National Academies of Sciences uh, called How People Learn Too. And it's, it's centered education around culture and talks about the fact that it, that culture is really social. It's a product of the way individuals learn to coordinate desirable and useful activities with, with others, and that it can change. It's a living system that people inherit one, but they can change it as well. And, and you know, they do it think, by things like the, what I've talked about, you know, changing behaviors, changing where and how people work, designing different physical space. Um, Another organization that had to completely transform its business or it would have gone out of business uh, is in the book that Martha and I wrote on strategic organizational learning. And it's a a company called Engineered Woods. 
and they uh, they realized that uh, they were making commodities, and if they didn't completely change the business and the culture with it, they would be out of business in about five years. And uh, when they set their big, hairy, audacious goals about the changes they needed to make, even the, the managers who had to buy into it or they'd lose everything, uh, they said it can't be done. They were very negative. But they started one uh, critical piece at a time. They, they began to create cross-functional teams that created new products, but that required that they put in place a whole new system for developing and identifying good project products. Uh, then they had a change um, bringing on the manufacturing people because the manufacturing people, uh, what it wasn't set up for specialty products and it had to transform that and they were very resistant. And, um, you know, talk about uh, uh, isolation of the sales force, the manager of the sales force had completely isolated his work unit from the rest of the company. And even the CEO had to ask his permission before he could even come and visit. That's how isolated it was. So uh, there was a lot of resistance to change. And um, ultimately, they did change. One of the things they changed was they too moved. And they moved to a place where they had open space, where everybody could interact. They changed. They put, uh, made it a fun place to work. But had they done that, those physical things without working with the change in the business first, uh, people wouldn't have seen how meaningful it was, and they wouldn't have gotten on board for changing the culture. Now, in in your answer there, one of the things that um, I was thinking about was how some of your examples relate to changing organizations, um, mm -hmm. and some to individuals, and then some to sort of work units or teams. There must be a certain ease in starting at the organizational level, but I would also imagine that the easiest unit to wrap my arms around would be a team. Um, so I was wondering how you view team learning and the building of capacity like within teams and across teams. Many people will recall um, if we if you're of a certain age, Sengi's book when it <laughs> came out, and you know he he also said that teams are the fundamental you know unit that needs to change for a learning organization to occur, for an organizational learning culture to take place. I think one of the key secrets to it is that it opens people up to new perspectives. Um, I think one of the one of the challenges that we have. Um, is that we get stuck in a frame of reference. We get stuck in a way of looking at things. Um, and when we work in teams, if we, if we are good team learners, then we listen as much or more than we talk. And we hear what other people are saying. And it's, it's the fact that in, uh, in teams that learning can occur at a, at a different level. In the individual, yes, we all have to change and we all have to learn in order to be able to change. But at the team level, we, we often pay attention to somewhat different kinds of things uh, because we're looking at how people relate to one another, how they collaborate across boundaries, how they bring in new information. Uh, we, are, we have the potential by listening to other perspectives to all of a sudden ask ourselves deeper questions about why in heaven's name have we been doing this kind of thing for so long? You know, what would happen if we changed it? And so it's in teams, I think what builds the capacity is that 
we don't overthink things. We we think to get something done and the goal is always there in front of us. And so we interact with one another. We, we get together uh, in different ways and we try things out. Karen and I were, are working with one of her doctoral students right now, Jill Jinks, who is doing some amazing things with complexity and adaptability in these um, rapidly moving, complex, unpredictable times, et cetera. And Jill, in reviewing the literature, came up with this wonderful study which talked about not trial and error, but trial and trial. Uh, we, we, in teams, get to try things over again um, until we get it right. One thing that Karen brought up that I think is critical uh, in all of these efforts, and most especially in teams, is the leader's role. And Karen did mention that the one item in the DLOQ that has the greatest connections uh, with many different outputs uh, around learning and around performance is that question of leaders modeling and encouraging and supporting learning. And leadership can manifest in different ways. So it, it doesn't mean that it has to be only one person. You could be in a team where there's distributed leadership and everybody learns how to do this, but some clear understanding of where the leadership is and people then can learn not only from what the leaders say, but most particularly watching them and how they implement that. One thing I think you know I do is I do a lot of work with action learning. Uh, action learning works in teams. They, there can be action learning teams that come together to work on a particular problem together or they, there can be action learning teams in which peers work on a sim, work on their own problems and get help from one another. And I've seen it work both ways. Um, but I think what happens when you have teams is that you, if you have somebody who pays attention to the learning of the team, often called a learning coach, they're there not to provide direction or to tell the team what to do, but to lift up moments as coaches do, to feed back to the team what they're seeing and hearing, uh, to raise questions, um, to po poke at assumptions. And in doing that, they, they give the team um, more um, information, which they might not see, about what their interactions are. They can ask questions about, well, when you did that, what result did you get? How did that land on other people? What consequences were there to that? So I think um, action learning or um, other strategies that uh, kind of look at a meta level at how the team is working together and how people are working together uh, is, a, is a good way um, to, you know, to further develop that capacity it sounds like there's a in, in thinking about learning at the team level that there's something of a focus around immediate application what i'm wondering is whether that shifts our attention a little away from the idea of realizing the longer term potential of of individuals people uh, in dealing with the immediate challenge can also deal with their long-term potential, uh, depending on how the organization kind of looks at these kinds of things. One of my students uh, had studied paramedics and paramedic pairs 
and she concluded that um, pairs can uh, either just you know work together okay and and save people's lives but not be very enriching but they could also be very enriching because in the pairs they also took advantage of um, being able to uh, talk with one another about knowledge that they had and to in in considering options um, to use to really explore different things that they had seen before and to either say that will work or that, that might work or that won't work. Uh, there's an absolutely wonderful example in her dissertation about coming paramedics coming upon a car uh, halfway over the bridge with a truck on top of it. And you know what it is that the paramedics had to do in talking with one another and learning together uh, in order to really extract those people safely, uh, you know, from that terrible situation. And then doing after action reviews afterwards to figure out, could I have done it differently? What else could I have done, et cetera? So I think there are many opportunities in the moment in working with somebody else on a particular um, activity to, to gain uh, new knowledge, whether it's new knowledge about what it is, you know, the content area, or you know, using some form of technology that we haven't been able to use before. Um, it's a bit like uh, also referencing what Karen talked about, learning in the workflow and work, work adjacent learning. Um, so I think those opportunities are there. Uh, the challenge of course is, as you have noted, that um, many organizations really emphasize the short run rather than the long run. And um, they really, um, don't allow that, you know, they say you can learn anything you want to, but there's never any time and you, you don't have the time, which people complain about the most is that they just don't have the time to even stop and think, let alone do any other kind of learning. So I think, you know, we're into the situation where, um, where in many cases, in order to change the culture, in order to change things like this, the, the leaders in the organization have to be on board. And, um, even if the organization has a rule that certain things are possible, if the CEO uh, or the leaders in the top team or the leader of your particular unit you're working in sends messages by what they do that they don't believe that and that's on the books, but it's not something they're going to adhere to, uh, then, you know, then it's very hard to do that. Um, you gave an example around the, the paramedics Mm -hmm. and, and learning from each other and learning from significant events that happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it makes me feel like um, there's tremendous opportunity in the modern workplace for transformative learning from moments like that, that encourage people to question mm -hmm. how they've worked up to this point. So, so I'm wondering how you view the importance of transformative learning in the modern workplace. Karen mentioned the idea when she spoke with you about uh, Kurt Lewin and uh, his ideas around change. And Kurt Lewin called it unfreezing uh, before you can change and then refreeze. And so it's in those unfreezing moments uh, that we really experience, uh, you know, transformative learning of one or other sort. And there are several views out there about, you know, how it can be kind of catalyzed or started. Um, and one is that it starts with some kind of, as Jack Mesro called it, a disorienting dilemma, or as Dewey called it, uh, which Chris Ardris uh, and Don Shun picked up on more, more likely, uh, a disjuncture, um, a, 
a mismatch, so to speak, between something that we anticipated happening and what actually happened. So any of these moments, um, Noel, a guy by the name of Noel, N-O-H-L, studies transformative learning in the more um, natural or organic circumstances rather rather than within the context of an organization or a program or something that pushes at change. But in all of these situations, there, is, there are moments of unease. Um, some of them are ignorable, and some of us do a very good job of ignoring them. <laughs> so, you know, transformative learning, I think, starts with some kind of disjuncture, and we have the opportunity at that point to stop and look more deeply. Whether we do or not depends a lot on, you know, to some extent, our capacity, We know from developmental um, thinking, uh, Keegan's work and Torbert's work and uh, other people who work in this space, that based on the environments we have lived in, our brain forms certain capacities for for complexity and abstractness. And the more complexity and abstractness we can deal with, the more we can see beyond certain boundaries to a larger larger set of them. And so uh, my colleague, Ellie Drago-Severson, uh, laughs and says that, uh, you know, some people actually can't reflect because they're such concrete thinkers that they can't step away from it in order to reflect on it. I think uh, transformative learning in the modern workplace is important because we have opportunities before us um, to continually change, and, uh, but we have to take advantage of them. And so we, when we're, we're facing these circumstances, we need to be able to sit back and um, think about how we're thinking about it and see it in new ways. And so I guess that feeds in also to why I think uh, teams and other collaborative relationships are so valuable. The paramedics, for example, if there was only themselves working this case, they would not be able to test things out in advance. They wouldn't be able to take advantage of the other person's experience in dealing with events like this. Uh, they, you know, they wouldn't necessarily recognize certain signs because they don't see them. They've never experienced it before and they haven't seen the consequences of it. I, I think what we want to do as human resource people and as learning and development people is to uh, help people enter into situations that they're not comfortable in, uh, you know, take that risk and one of the values of action learning is that it creates a little laboratory in which you can do that because you have a team, uh, trust tends to build up in it, peers tend to help one another, a learning coach can create great climate for that to happen. And so you have a safe space, so to speak. And people begin transforming without even knowing that's what they were gonna do. One of the challenges, of course, is that in HR and learning and development, What's happened in some way is we have a technology of learning and development, and we have a small subset of people at the core who outsource uh, learning and development activities to, to other people who come in and do things. And that can work, but it does mean that you don't have a watchful eye, as many watchful eyes of people who get to know and earn the trust of people in the organization and who can work with teams and other people to help scaffold in the way that's needed in order to be able to support transformation. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for our conversation today. It's been great chatting with you about learning in organizations. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, so thank you very much, Darren, for this opportunity to kind of think about these things. 
Excellent. Well, if you um, if you stay around, uh, you'll be rejoining us later in the episode for our group discussion. Fabulous. I'll do that. My third guest today is Dr. Jelena D. Alston, tenured associate professor of adult education and a faculty affiliate with the Center of Excellence in Product Design and Advanced Manufacturing at North Carolina A&T State University. Her scholarly engagement focuses on mentoring and adult learning and development, inclusive practices in workforce education and leadership development in STEM, history of African-Americans and adult education, and faculty development and career progression. She's authored over 25 scholarly publications and is the recipient of the 2020 Malcolm Knowles Award for Outstanding Adult Education Leadership. She is the CEO for Alston Educational Group, LLC, and her company helps people push through tensions and seek prosperous and sustainable solutions. Hi, Jelena. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on learning in organizations. It is great to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. You know, I was thinking about the bio that I just read out, and it made me think that with the chats I've had with both Karen and Victoria, we explored many different types of learning in organizations, but we didn't dig into mentoring much. I know that your research interests include mentoring. So I was wondering what you see as the role of mentoring as part of a learning culture. So for me, when I think of mentoring, I, I automatically think of learning. Um, I, I do believe it is difficult to discuss mentoring in adult and continuing education contexts such as HRD without acknowledging that perhaps there is an interdependent relationship between the mentors and the mentees you know, who are participating in that relationship. And that may lead to learning and development for both individuals or all individuals if there's a sense of group mentoring. Um, I am truly in the position that mentoring is grounded in the theories of adult learning um, such that individuals who are involved, they are adult learners, right? Um, and within that, they are involved in this partnership of what I consider iterative learning and development, right? So that's really how I conceptualize mentoring at its core. Um, and I feel that, you know, this, this notion of mentoring is at the crux of a pivotal moment where adult learning and development may intersect. And I, I, I do believe that it, it almost always intersects, right? Because there's, a, there's this, this uh, potential for growth. Mentoring relationships can essentially promote critical reflection. Um, and then, you know, coupled with what Victoria as well as Karen mentioned, you know, it really has a potential to promote transformative learning among all persons involved within a mentoring relationship. I know in my experience within organizations, I often come across this confusion in practice between coaching and mentoring. And so just in case anybody listening also has that confusion, what do you see as the distinction between somebody who's coaching versus somebody who's mentoring? I, I think that the coach is the quick and dirty, and maybe that's not the, the right terminology, right? But the approach, it seems that, you know, mentoring takes time. Yeah. 
but you can coach someone pretty quickly. It's not a micro learning approach, but it's very focused on a particular um, competency, on a particular task that needs to be completed, a particular, a particular strength that needs to be developed. Um, whereas mentoring is a little bit more holistic. I think mentoring takes a different, um, somewhat of a holistic approach, right? So perhaps there are things within a mentoring relationship that until you actually engage in that space, um, you are just unaware of the potential for that growth and development to occur. Where, whereas a co- as opposed to coaching, is very directed. So it sounds like, in a way, it sounds like coaching is likely to be short term and probably more tactical and mentoring is likely to be longer term and potentially more transformational and possibly even more strategic. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. So if that's the case, when I think about strategy right now in organizations and where many organizations are struggling with strategy, um, one common struggle I see across organizations in all sectors is how to respond on social justice and how to deal with issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So to pick that as an example of a strategic area, I'm wondering how you see mentoring potentially being part of an overall strategy to respond to that. I argue that all mentoring relationships are essentially cross-cultural in nature. Mentoring relationships involve a minimum of two individuals who have distinguishing cultural characteristics. And that goes beyond race, ethnicity, gender, religion, social economic status, sexual orientation or gender expression, right? Mentoring is to me, for me, it's, it's a, a great opportunity to help to strategize and, and support initiatives when it comes to celebrating diversity, um, demonstrating equity focus and inclusive practices because mentoring relationships are affected by the current social political as well as historical um, context when it comes to the you know socially constructed images our identities stereotypes that have been used to 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 describe cultures right we don't we don't appear at work uh, within these workplaces and, and within learning spaces and places you know without our identities we recognize that that identities are socially constructed Um, And that sometimes people may not feel comfortable because they're still negotiating tension when it comes to their sense of belonging, their positionality. And so um, within the the organizations, mentoring can help to um, break down or really reduce the anxiety that may exist. It may create an additional space for structures to be deconstructed in a different way within the workplace environment, within organizations and um, within the various spaces of learning in the organization. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, ontologically and epistemologically, mentoring experiences can be troublesome for people, right? So people have to think about that when when you're thinking about your, your diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives you cannot forget that people are coming to this space as adult learners and they have different experiences. 
and not all of the all of their experiences may have been positive. And so how can you support the your the the learners within the organization and create mentoring experiences and and and, and support an environment where mentoring relationships can be fostered and sustained that really um, help members who are, you know, underrepresented, minoritized, um, or, you know, come from dis disenfranchised groups um, who, who continue to grapple and will continue to grapple, right? Um, when it comes to the positionality within these spaces in the organization. And, and all of this is happening in a, in a work context that is continually changing, as in like work changes, organizations change, the concept of careers has changed a lot over the last 20, 30 years. And so when you think about mentoring and its role in, in diversity, equity and inclusion, and, and I guess it's all in organizations as a whole as they change, are you seeing mentoring shift? Are you seeing changes in mentoring now that will change the way that mentoring works in the future? Absolutely. I think that we are going to continue to see a, a slight shift from a one-on-one -on -one approach to mentoring and really connect or engage more when it comes to group approaches to mentoring. We do not work in silos. We don't learn in silos within the organizations. I am a huge proponent of group mentoring. And so when you have a group approach to mentoring, um, for example, I could have five mentees. And if you think about the amount of time that it takes me to impart wisdom, you know, verbatim to the, each five in an individual session, why can't I do that collectively in a group session? I think that group mentoring can also support us getting to a different space of really understanding and embracing the need to demonstrate cultural respectfulness within the learning organizations, right? Cultural respectfulness just simply means that you respect the personhood. And it's a little different than culturally responsive because when you are respectful, right? You pay attention and learn through observation and listen to others without contempt, judgment, or attempt to qualify or validate. And so I hope that we continue to see um, mentoring as a space to affirm individuals and their competencies and not to validate who they are as persons, right? Um, and then moving forward also, I think one of the, the, the continued challenges, um, but I'm hopeful, that, that we will address this in a very different way um, is really to develop additional methods to assess mentoring within organizations in other various contexts, right? So um, I believe right now, many organizations are seeking ways to evaluate mentoring experiences as well as mentoring competencies and practices. Um, right now I'm in the earliest, early stages of developing and validating an instrument to assess mentoring. And, you know, Darren, I look forward to joining you on another episode in the future to chat about the instrument what it once has developed.
the, that's a wonderful development and it also sounds innovative. Um, I think it's nice to see mentoring innovate to adapt to the changing workplace and to play an even more strategic role. I, I wonder if you, if you take a step back and take a look at learning as a whole within organizations, um, how do we get more innovative as a whole in how we learn within organizations? So that question makes me think about some of the work that Kathy Hansman and I have explored rather recently, right? Um, essentially, we think reconceptualizing this whole notion of openness and maintaining accountability for this rediscovery of openness. And specifically, what does it mean to demonstrate openness within the learning space, right? We feel this is crucial for organizations to change the capacity for innovation. So for example, when I consider mentoring or working in teams within organizations, open-mindedness is very, very important in supporting the psychological safety of adult learners in that organization. And we have to think about them as adult learners within the organization because this is a, a culture of learning, right? It's a space of learning. And when we think about, for example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it really illuminates the significance of security. So if you have colleagues and you, you really do recognize them as adult learners, um, and, and if they feel that the organization has, has not created a learning environment that supports their psychological safety, then therein lies a significant challenge, right? Yeah. So then the second part, you know, just thinking about organizations, um, they have to be clear about the culture of communication within the culture of learning, right? So, you know, it's almost like concentric circles. So we know that there, there's a organization and there's a culture. And then within that, there's a culture of learning. And then within that, perhaps there's a culture of communication. So, you know, learning within organizations uh, is grounded in relationships. And relationships are fostered and sustained through communication. And, and so, you know, I, I really challenge organizations to continue to engage in critical reflection and assess their culture of communication. And that includes oral communication, written communications, interpersonal communications, as well as, you know, digital communications. We, we cannot exclude that now um, because communication and relationship building are interdependent within learning spaces. Um, and they ultimately can foster authentic connections among the adult learners within the organization. Picking up on that, when you think about the concept of learning spaces and organizations utilize, like creating and utilizing multiple learning spaces, do you see one of those being outside of the organization, essentially the space of adult education? And if so, what do you see as the relationship between learning in organizations and the role of adult education? Um, it is critical for organizations to, to never forget that adult learners occupy the workspace, right? These are adult learners. They're not just colleagues. They're not just employees. They're not just supervisors. They're not just leaders, right? They are adult learners. And so when we think about that, 
right? And learning within organizations, all organizations have some type of training, some type of continuing education, some type of professional development, some type of learning platform, et cetera, right? So when we, when organizations do not recognize colleagues as adult learners, it's almost like a self-inflicted wound for an organization, right? Um, and it can have a detrimental impact on the learning culture within the organization. And so I think that when you juxtapose learning within organizations and adult education, I think there is a natural synergy and a beautiful harmony, right? A lot of the um, adult education practices, approaches, um, some of the, the theories within our field, I think that organizations um, could really leverage the expertise that um, comes out of the space of adult education scholars. Um, I think that really the, the relationship between learning within organizations and adult education is why you know, human resource development exists. And I would argue that it is transdisciplinary. I, I, I am very hopeful in that you know, organizations will continue to um, partner with adult education scholars, um, partner with adult education graduate programs, because we are, you know, could do some, some help them when it comes to research. Um, I know Victoria is very big on action research. Um, and a, a lot of time, oftentimes organizations may not have the time or really understand how to even go about tackling some of their challenges. And so, you know, definitely um, consider associations, right? Such as AHRD, um, such as AAACE, which is the American Association for Adult and Continuing Education, right? Because these are some, some learning spaces that are outside of the organization that could also support the learning within the organization. Yeah, that makes me wonder actually what what would happen if there was a like a a change in mindset within HRD professionals in organizations who typically see employees as human resources if if there was a shift from that to viewing employees as adult learners in a workplace setting i, I wonder what that mind shift would lead to in the way that HRD is just conceived and approaches work. That is very interesting that you mentioned that because these are some of the conversations that I have had as of late, right? So I work with the um, various en entities and, you know, agencies um, as a faculty affiliate at North Carolina A&T's Center of Excellence in Product Design and Advanced Manufacturing. And you're like, what are you, I'm not a scientist. I don't do anything with advanced manufacturing or digital manufacturing, no, right? But this is the challenge that they have. And so part of what I do is I engage HRD uh, professionals within these spaces because you're right, this is the mindset that, that exists oftentimes. They view the employees as human resources. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, may sound a little um, negative, but, you know, also view them at times as they're disposable. And I feel that, you know, that has, has created a huge challenge 
um, again, when you do not recognize that the colleagues within the learnings uh, within your organization are in fact adult learners, right? And you don't embrace or adopt this culture of lifelong learning, right? Um, you're just teaching them one thing and just expect for, for that to fulfill, provide fulfillment for the employees every day from there on, right? And, and I, I, I do believe that, you know, it's just in our, our nature that when we are no longer stimulated intellectually, we get bored and we just, we, we, we try to go on and, and, you know, we want to engage in, in, in something else. And so it's not a surprise to me that, you know, for certain industries, there's a high turnover that, you know, once an individual is trained and skilled, then they take that, that training and the skills that they developed at one space and they trans transition to another space. And so HRD professionals are perplexed and, 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 you know, feel, well, we are pouring into these, you know, um, we're, we're pouring into the, you know, providing this training and, you know, we're spending a lot of money until organizations start to see their colleagues and employees as adult learners and, stop thinking about them as human resources that can be replaced, I think we're going to continue to, to be faced with that challenge. And I do believe that that's where adult education and the, the, some of the perspectives and theories that um, anchor our field or even some of the ones that have yet to be discovered, right? Um, I think that it can really help organizations um, and HRD professionals have a, a shift in their mindset. I look forward to continuing that conversation. And unfortunately, we've run out of time for today. But, oh, uh, no. Yeah, but thank you so much for our conversation, Gina. I've really enjoyed this. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so stay with us and we'll bring back Victoria and Karen and continue the conversation as a group. Thank you so much indeed. Okay, thanks. Up next, we have the group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of the University of Georgia, Mary Frances Early College of Education, Department of Lifelong Education, Administration and Policy, whose program of adult learning, leadership and organization development equips learners to gain deep knowledge and skills to lead learning and change to help adults, teams, and organizations thrive with their blended and online Masters of Education, innovative hybrid executive doctorate of education, and world-class research training in their PhD program. They also have graduate certificates in organization coaching and transformative leadership. Using their unique framework that emphasizes the theory and practice needed to strategically and holistically develop healthy, sustainable organizations, learners gain a mastery of multiple areas, including adult learning and training, organization development and change leadership, group development and problem solving, talent management and development, and career development and coaching.
Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass Podcast. Our focus for this episode is learning in organizations, and I've already met one-to-one with Karen Watkins, Victoria Marsik, and Jelena Alston. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Karen, Victoria, and Jelena. Thank you, Darren. Great to be here with such wonderful people. Thank you, Darren. To start with, I'd like to go back to a topic that bubbled up in the conversations earlier, which was about the trend towards creating short, highly highly targeted learning, like micro-learning. And as HRD does that more often, I'm wondering, how do we help employees to understand the big picture and connect the micro-learning to that big picture? Well, I can get us started when learning and development is provided or supported in the organization, it's often supported for the people who who may need the least support. You know, it it is for the managers at the top level who are pretty high level learners in the first place or they wouldn't be managers. Uh, They may be mislearning things uh, because they they get very involved in their own framework. We all do as we we get... um, more and more informed about things, we we get convinced about them, and, and it sometimes is more a question of unlearning. But I, but I think that there are many people who could get confused because they don't normally get the big picture, and they don't know what why they're learning what they're learning or how it fits in. We need to think more about how to help them do that. We do onboarding, for example. But what do you, what about once you have been on board? How do you move forward? Yesterday, Karen and I were involved in a conversation with some people, and one of the folks that I talked with talked about the idea of not only onboarding, but reboarding (laughs) and, um, you know, ways of rethinking ourselves because new people always join the organization. Directions change very quickly, and we need to get reacquainted with the big picture, even if we have it at the beginning because we have a good onboarding kind of situation. And also people... um, you know, learn the big picture if they can be engaged in important work practices. So uh, some of my students who um, are in the financial world, for example, they say they learn the most when they sit in on calls that seniors do with clients or, you know, they're involved in projects with someone who, uh, as Jelena would say, you know, are good mentors, you know, who bring them in on things, et cetera. So we can use work assignments uh, in a way to keep people involved in the big picture. And particularly if we know what micro uh, training is available and what, what is being focused on, we can try to identify in advance what the big picture work practices are, and we can plug people into them in some way or another, refer to those in our micro bite kinds of things. The learning and development people ourselves, we need to have a framework that helps us to look at the whole. And, um, you know, we all have different frameworks, uh, but uh, the framework needs to be robust enough, if I can use that word, that it doesn't only include the skills themselves and how we can teach that, but it, but how that thing fits into the whole. Well, I, I actually want to speak in favor of micro learning as a, um, a way of, of um, achieving the mission. You know, uh, I've been involved in, in um, an evaluation of a micro learning uh, experience that was, has been part of the Geneva Learning Foundation, which I, of which I'm a board member. And what we have found is that these um, micro learning sessions, they're actually 
uh, they call them itch sessions, which is funny. They're immunization training challenge hackathons. And they're 30 minute open-ended uh, challenge discussions where people bring a challenge they're having in, in their training related to uh, immunization. These are all healthcare workers that we're dealing with. And others can give examples of what's working. Uh, ultimately, in these sessions where, you know, up to 50 people might be observing, maybe three to five people will, will offer ideas. Um, but what we found in our evaluation is that this has high level impact. And I think it's because it's this open informal learning strategy that, that people can bring the challenge that's immediate to them. It's not some uh, canned micro session that, that uh, you know, may or may not speak to the needs of individuals. This is absolutely something that they're worried about and that they need to work on. And so I think you get, um, you know, a, a pretty powerful amount of impact from 30 minutes of targeted, focused, but open-ended learning. So I think microlearning can link to the big picture, um, but, it, but it's uh, aided, uh, it, you know, it, it has to be a little bit more open-ended, I think, to, to do that. One of the trends that tends to go hand in hand with micro learning is the ability for employees to be able to create their own learning, which they can then share with each other via intranets or blogs or other internal systems. And, and as employees learn more from each other, I'm wondering, do you feel that HRDs therefore moved away from its role with employee learning? And, and if it has, is that something it should be reclaiming? I think that the influx um, or the, the extension, right, advancement of the, the technological applications and access that we have, absolutely um, HRD should take, a, take it into consideration because I think that it is integral to reshaping the future of HRD. Just the other day, I was on LinkedIn and I noticed that at least five of my colleagues who I'm connected with on LinkedIn, they shared that they had completed a certificate or completed a course. Um, and it, it gave me a little bit of pause. Um, so the first thing I thought, you know, on one hand, wow, this is great. You know, technology provides us with access to uh, uh, alternative spaces for learning and development. But then it also, it, it made me say, well, okay, how will that really impact the need for HRD professionals in the future, right? So on one hand, the blogs are very um, um, great spaces of, you know, additional informal um, and incidental learning, right? But at the same time, we really have to identify a good balance um, and, and really take into to, to consideration um, some of the work of Pohl and Van de Kurt, and, and they present this, this notion of a learning path, right? That involves where it's not a prepackaged off the shelf, you know, kind of product, but where the, the employee has a sense of autonomy, you know, which is very important for adult learners within the workplace, but they have a sense of autonomy and there's a, a different level of self-directedness as they are learners um, and employees and, and how they can, can have a different type of engagement. 
right? A different type of attention when it comes to their, their learning. Um, and, and there's more of a reliance on the employee and what the employee needs, how the employee self reflects on the learning in that space um, versus just it from a top-down approach of what the, the employer um, believes that the learner needs. You know, I, I kind of, uh, I think these are really good questions, Jelena. The, the truth is that, um, you know, I think we've hurt ourselves by focusing only on process, right? We talk about uh, the how of presenting, but we hire expertise. Well, you know, the ex if the expertise doesn't ever reside in, in HRD professionals, almost anybody can hire an expert, right? Or like you said, they can find them on the internet or LinkedIn or wherever. So, you know, what is the professional expertise that we're going to bring to the organization that's valued going forward with content uh, ubiquitous, just everywhere? Um, you know, I think it has to be, there has to be some subject matter that we know better than most. You know, Karen and Jelena, I think those are all important points. And uh, Karen, I find it interesting because I was thinking that in some ways, I think what we've worked ourselves out of is, uh, you know, being experts in having to design learning, right? We, we, our profession was served for a long time by being unified around instructional systems design. And now we don't really, I mean, there are people who need to do that when they're putting content together, but we're not creating courses inside the organization. You know, we are outsourcing a lot of things. People are getting information and knowledge on their own, et cetera. That's no longer something that's going to help us. Um, and in, in some ways, it's the type of process that we're, I think we focus on. So we focused on processes of learning, which uh, you know, are useful in some ways, but we also need to focus on processes of figuring out how that learning can be uh, supported uh, through content, which kind of marries up with what you're talking about, Karen. You're just talking a bit about the role that leaders have and, and managers have. And, and I'd like to zero in a little on a subset of those, and in particular, the role of frontline managers. It, it feels like frontline managers have a key role in making or in breaking a learning culture. And I wonder, if, would you agree with that? And if so, how should HRD be preparing frontline managers to play that role? Absolutely, I would agree with that. I mean, the, the dimensions of a learning organization questionnaire that, that we've developed and, and use all over the world um, repeatedly has demonstrated that the most important dimension is, um, you know, that people provide leadership for learning. And that happens very much at, well, at all levels, but, but very importantly at the front line. And in fact, one of the items in that dimension, the, the leaders mentor and coach those they lead uh, is the strongest predictor of performance, organizational performance. So if you want knowledge and financial performance, then you need frontline managers who can mentor and coach those they lead. And I think that HRD has a really important role in helping people, first of all, see that, that they have to uh, think about what is it that their employees need to learn. You know, I, we did some interviews of senior leaders in a biomedical company that was global. And one of the things that was so impressive was the way in which 
each of the managers we talked to, really senior managers, could tell you in such specific detail what it is that their employees next needed to learn, you know, in order for them to be promotable. I think there's a role for peers and not just managers also in, in helping people acquire skills. You know, in the early, early training era, we used to talk about you go sit by Nellie. And Nellie was the high performer. And Nellie could, could help people figure out how to do the task more effectively. So I think that's another role. But managers generally facilitate that. So getting, getting, finding out who Nellie is and getting people to go sit by her to figure out the task, all of that um, is the kind of thing that the leader can do. Karen, I, I love what you've had to say and, and fully agree with it, no surprise. Uh, but as you were talking about it, I also uh, thought of something that uh, relates to how successful frontline managers are in that role. And, and that is that they're supervised by middle managers and um, middle managers are often the block. Uh, they themselves you know, they're separated from the front line. So they're, they're, they're taking information and kind of negotiating between the, what they're hearing, et cetera, and the top level, but they themselves may not be sufficiently involved with the frontline managers or in what that work is. And so um, I'm, I'm wondering, Karen, as, as you talk about that, if there isn't, uh, you know, a role and this brings Jelena, Jelena's expertise in um, to really helping now the middle level managers uh, be more of a coach and a support and a peer support to the frontline manager. And this, of course, means changing the incentives and reward system, because right now reward systems often don't necessarily reward the frontline manager to be the coach and the, and the learning culture shaper, nor do they uh, necessarily uh, reward the middle level manager to be that to their frontline managers. So it's everything's the connected with everything else, of course, <laughs> the systems that we live in. But but I, I'm curious about that. Mentoring is critical when it comes to the learning organization. And um, at some point, I think it would, would benefit organizations to really take a, a, um, a look at, at do they have this assumption that their managers and their leaders are um, good mentors, right? Um, and then for them to explore, similar to what Karen mentioned, she talked about, you know, leaning on peers. And so really looking at exploring the possibility of encouraging a mentoring network and how will that support the learning within the organization. So it's not just where you're heavily dependent on one person to guide and to lead the efforts when it comes to learning because that person is your mentor or that person is your coach, right? Um, and then the, the other notion that I, I want to, um, to, to, to speak to right now is that we place so much emphasis on leadership development, manager development, and developing skills for the, the higher um, level executives, right? But I wonder if we place emphasis on the significance of followership and how critical that is to the learning um, that occurs within the organization or the stimulation of learning, or even how the, you know, people collectively engage in learning as a team and within the organization. I wonder what we see things a little different. 
We've been exploring trends in different ways. And a few moments ago, Victoria mentioned the trend of outsourcing of different parts of HRD. So, for example, companies buying in off-the-shelf programs or they're contracting out to external instructional designers. And I'd like to dig into that just a little more and specifically ask whether that's a good or bad trend from the perspective of learning organizations. I think what happens when we outsource is that it's a little bit like uh, some kind of a crisis that all of a sudden shows where the thin threads are in a structure, where things are not going right, that we're able to work around but, uh, or, or, or tolerate, but, but which really has to be addressed. And so I think the, the fundamental question is the one we started with is, you know, has HR, have people in HRD in the organization been able to be seen to add value to the business? And are they functioning in a way, are we functioning as learning and development people that um, our value is not only added, but it's also seen and recognized um, so that people uh, don't in fact uh, want to, um, you know, that the outsourcing is kind of like what people are talking about with AI these days. That is that the automated parts of things or the parts that require special expertise and are better done by somebody else can be done by somebody else. But we, as the people in L&D, can be the mediators and can ensure the success of the people who are coming in, make sure it's contextualized, make sure it fits, make, follow up on what they're doing so that it, it in fact, uh, if people need support to really implement things, we're there and we can be working with the business around that kind of thing. So if those kinds of things are there, if, if we're, we're working positively, then I think uh, it's not so much of a threat. Um, it's, it's really, it just makes it easier for us to put our attention to other things that we, we need our time for. Um, but, I, but I also uh, think that um, one other question comes about that those people who are bringing in, they don't know the context of the business. And so um, in the early days of outsourcing, many of the people who got hired as outside contractors used to work in these organizations and they understood them from the inside out. So we need to be careful when we do hire from the outside, that it's not just a standardized thing that gets plopped in and doesn't fit with the, with the really the fundamental way that the organization works. I don't know, Karen or Jelena, if you have other thoughts as you ruminated on that question. Yes, I, I, I think you're spot on. You know, the, the real issue for me is from a point of view of a learning organization is that, that you don't build internal capacity. So you, you're bringing in external capacity. So it, it actually increases the sense that the internal group is perhaps not adding value. Uh, so so I, think, I think it is a kind of a dangerous trend. And, and you know, I'm much more interested in how do we build capacity of the uh, internal HRD people. I'm conscious as we've talked about learning during the episode we focused a lot on what's probably typical of learning in larger organizations and so as a final question i'm thinking it'd be nice to scale that down a little and just explore what these ideas and approaches look like if you're in a smaller organization for example a company with 50 to 100 employees how would a company like that approach learning I think that the point that Karen just made about 
focusing and, and you know, a, a different level of commitment to developing the internal capacity. I think that's what we see oftentimes with small businesses, right? And I think that they have an advantage. Um, and this is just, this is not based off of research. This is just my opinion, my, my perspective. But I, I, I do believe that um, there, there is a different level of investment. Perhaps they, they don't have the financial means to outsource and, and, and seek uh, external capacity, right? Um, and so they, they, they utilize and maximize the potential that they have within. Um, I also think that just from a, when I think about learning in organizations, I think that there, there perhaps is a different level of communication, right? A culture of, a, a different culture of communication within small businesses, which then imparts, um, in part has a, a huge influence on the, the learning space and the, the environment that is primed for learning within the organization. Um, I think there's also a different level of transparency. So earlier in the conversation, you know, Victoria talked about the middle managers and how there's a little bit of distance between, you know, the, 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 the workers and, and um, really who they are and, and what are they interested in? What would they like to learn, right? They're, as opposed to going in with an assumption of this is what you need to learn. And it also connects to what, what um, Karen mentioned at the very top of the conversation that, you know, the focus has been on process. Well, I think that small businesses and smaller organizations, their focus is on the people, right? Uh, first and foremost, because they, they, they have the, the space and, and I guess opportunity to, to have a smaller amount of, of, of people um, to, to give attention to, but at the same time, that could also um, inform or, or, or at least provide suggestions um, or recommendations for larger organizations to say, hey, you may have a large organization, but how can you replicate or implement some similar approaches that we see within a smaller organization? Jelena, that I just love what you've just said. I, I think you're so, so right about this. I, I, I had a student that was, um, um, you know, kind of the training person for a trade association. And I watched her, um, you know, you know not, not only did her capacity grow, just as you said, but, but um, she was able to take on all the roles. You know, she was doing training for this and, and she was doing an organization development intervention that we were working with uh, her on using action learning and, and other, other things that she'd been learning in our, in our, graduate program so and your notion that the focus is on the people uh, uh, that is so so true it, it, different students that I've had working in these smaller organizations will come back and you know they'll, they'll plan interventions around a small group of people because they can and because they are so clear about uh, what's going on with that group of people so I really appreciate your perspective Jelena. Well, that feels a wonderful way of wrapping up our conversation. I did want to say a big thank you to all three of you for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversations and I want to say thank you for being a part of our discussion on learning in organizations. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. So much, Darren. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Karen, Victoria and Jelena. 
If you enjoyed this episode, check out our others to explore topics such as training and development, diversity, equity and inclusion, and career development. New episodes release weekly for this first series of 10 episodes. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of HRD, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our group discussion sponsor, the University of Georgia Graduate Program in Adult Learning, Leadership and Organization Development, by visiting their website at coe.uga.edu forward slash academics forward slash concentrations forward slash learning, leadership and organization development. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.